Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the veil of tears into which all new planning information is deposited, and extract the key things you need to know. In this edition, two councils are urging Housing Secretary Michael Gove to block a 1,000 home scheme due to concerns about the water supply. We'll find out why. Meanwhile, the government has set out which protected habitats developers won't need to enhance as part of the new rules requiring development to boost biodiversity. We'll explain what they are. We also catch up with the latest on local plan making progress, which ones have been delayed and which have been restarted. And on top of all that, we'll also round up some of the other big news stories of the past fortnight. So, ready to go in? Let's do it. Well, back again in Room 106. It looks a bit calmer after the passing of the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act. They must be girding their loins for the secondary legislation and the finalised MPPF. So, who's in here this week? Well, Planning's Insight Editor, Samantha Eckford, is joining us. Hello, Sam. Hello, Richard. And our reporter, Alex King, is also here. Hi, Alex. Hello. But, John, can I start by turning to you... Tell us a bit more about this big scheme that's been turned down by a couple of councils on water supply grounds. What was the proposal? So the proposal was an outline application from house builder Barrett, David Wilson Holmes and the Northwest Cambridge Consortium of Landowners. And they wanted to build a thousand homes on a 79 hectare site on the edge of Cambridge. And this week, members of Cambridge City Council and South Cambridgeshire Council's Joint Planning Committee, so the two councils share uh, development control responsibilities, they voted unanimously to urge the planning inspectorate to reject these proposals. And the plans involve up to a 1,000 new homes, a new primary school and secondary school, community facilities and a new country park. And these proposals are phases two and three of what's called the Darwin Green development. So why had the Environment Agency objected? They issued a formal objection to the application over a year ago, according to the officer's report. And they cited the impact of the development on additional demand for potable water use, increased abstraction and risk deterioration to water bodies in the greater Cambridge area. The agency went on to say that the plans failed to demonstrate that the potential impact on water resources had been assessed and appropriate mitigation considered. What did the planning committee decide? So the application has actually gone to appeal on the grounds of non-determination because the joint planning committee had not issued a decision within the statutory time limit. So the applicants have appealed to the planning inspectorate. What the Joint Planning Committee was doing this week was setting out their stance on the proposal, which will be taken into account by the inspector at appeal. The councils agreed unanimously with officers' recommendation for refusal. Officers said that the application fails to demonstrate that the water to the development site can be supplied sustainably and would not cause harm to the environment by reason of impact on groundwater bodies, including chalk aquifers. Officers also said the proposal lacked adequate mitigation measures and site-wide water efficiency measures, and it was contrary to 
local plan policies requiring all development proposals to demonstrate that the quality of ground and surface water will not be harmed. And what's the background to all this? Well, water supply is a big issue in Cambridgeshire and across the east of England. So last June, we reported that the Environment Agency had objected to a series of applications in Cambridgeshire, including Darwin Green, which totaled 5,000 homes on the basis that the water demand from these developments would pose a significant risk to the environment. So alongside this 1,000 home scheme we've just been talking about, they also objected to plans for 3,500 homes at Bourne Airfield to the east of Cambourne and 425 homes for land north of Cambridge North Station. In addition, in July, our listeners will remember the big announcement from Michael Gove setting out a series of planning and housing proposals. And among that was surprise plans for 250,000 homes in Cambridge and the surrounding area. And that immediately caused outspoken opposition from both South Cambridgeshire and Cambridge City Councils and a local MP who said that not only had they not been consulted, but they were very concerned there wasn't enough water to support these proposals. So clearly in Cambridgeshire, water supply is a big issue. And you can only see this issue growing in the future, given the, the, you know, the, the intense housing pressure in Cambridgeshire and the east of England and um, climate change, which is uh, affecting water supplies. Okay, so it looks like uh, this story is uh, evidence that this issue about water supply is really beginning to bite as far as decisions on big housing schemes are concerned. Yes, it's definitely one to watch. Thank you very much, John. We'll um, come back to you later to talk about your roundup of other stories from the past week. Alex, can I turn to you now? You've been looking at this announcement from the government talking about the protected habitats that developers won't actually need to enhance as part of the new biodiversity rules. Now, these are called irreplaceable habitats, as I understand it. Can you tell us something about what an irreplaceable habitat is? Sure. Irreplaceable habitats essentially hold immense biodiversity value and are incredibly difficult to restore, recreate or replace once destroyed. So difficult, the government says, that it would be, quote, impossible to achieve the requirement to increase biodiversity on top of known net loss. Okay, so if I'm understanding that correctly, these are incredibly valuable habitats. And I'm guessing that in a lot of instances, development won't be allowed anywhere near them. But if development was allowed somewhere near them, it would be impossible to create a net gain in terms of that habitat. So in such a situation, all the government would be requiring would to be to ensure no net loss. That's correct. So which habitats have been deemed as irreplaceable? So in October, the government published a list of habitats that will be on the initial mandatory BNG list. So these are ancient woodland, ancient and veteran trees, blanket bog, limestone pavements, coastal sand dunes, Spartina salt marsh swards, and Mediterranean salt marsh scrub. Some of this is probably more familiar to some of us than others. Um, I don't know if there's any Mediterranean salt marsh scrub around where I am, but um, it'd be interesting to see it. Anyway, what's caused some confusion is that the government has also published details of its biodiversity metric, the method by which biodiversity levels will be, be measured recently, and included a couple of these irreplaceable habitats on that list, which has caused some confusion. Why have they done that? It's really interesting. So we asked 
DEFRA, why it had included two of the irreplaceable habitats on this biodiversity metric, as you say, and whether they would remove them from it. And they essentially said that they recognized the difficulties in achieving the requirement to increase biodiversity on top of no net loss in these in these habitats. And they are blanket bog and limestone pavement. That's correct. Yeah, limestone pavement and blanket bog are the two that overlap between the two. And as such, whilst they have to still be recorded in the metric, that the 10% net gain requirement isn't applied and they'll monitor impacts and provide bespoke compensation where necessary. On the flip side, the government also said that accompanying the lists that irreplaceable habitats had to be included to help ascertain biodiversity enhancements. So that was why it seemed to be they were on both lists. Okay. Uh, well, that seems to stack up, doesn't it? It makes sense that there's a value to having them in the in the biodiversity metric if it allows you to monitor what's happening to that habitat around and about a, a development, even if you're not expecting to be able to improve or, or enhance that um, that habitat. You've just got to make sure that it's not it's not getting worse. And while we're on the subject of biodiversity, one of the bits of guidance that's needed to enable councils, developers and others to actually do the things that they need to do to meet the biodiversity net regain requirements in January has been published, I believe. That's correct, yeah. So as the biodiversity net gain policy, that will require developers to demonstrate how they achieve a minimum of 10% increase in all new developments. As part of this, developers will have to submit what's known as a biodiversity game plan to the planning authority for approval. New draft guidance published on the 26th of October by DEFRA sets out the details on the requirements for these. So the plan will be submitted as a post-permission document, meaning after the initial planning permission is granted, but before development has started. The local planning authority must approve the plan in writing before development begins. As part of the biodiversity game plan, local planning authorities will need to check that developers have provided a completed metric calculation tool and pre-development and post-development plans showing the location of on-site habitats. And if applicable, the developer will also need to provide an approved compensation plan, a register reference number, evidence of being eligible for statutory biodiversity credits in the form of correspondence from habitat providers, proof of purchase of statutory biodiversity credits, and a habitat management and monitoring plan. It sounds like it's going to be another one of those uh, things that has to be resolved after a planning permission. And obviously, there's many things that uh, certainly on, on big schemes that applicants need to do after they get permission to actually be in a position where they are approved to uh, to start building. And this is going to be an, an additional one. Okay, well, thanks, Alex. Now I'm going to turn to Sam for a, an update on what's been going on on the plan making front in the uh, in the last couple of weeks. So I understand, Sam, that there's been another local plan delay. Yes, that's right. Stratford-upon-Avon District Council and Warwick District Council have announced that the adoption of their joint plan, known as the South Warwickshire Local Plan, has been delayed by two years. In a joint statement, the authorities' respective heads of service said that a number of factors had meant that a revision to the timetable was required. This included a delay to the publication of census data and what they said was uncertainty around the potential changes to national planning policy and to the planning system, including the process for updating plans. 
In addition, they said that changes to the administrations of both councils following the local elections in May had meant that members of all parties needed time to understand the progress on the plan to date and have an opportunity to have an input into this process. All of this means that the plan is now expected to be adopted by the end of 2027 rather than 2025, as had been expected. Okay, so yet another delay. Uh, However, there has been some news in the past fortnight of authorities which are restarting their plans. Is, Is that right? Yes, that's right. Wealdon District Council in East Sussex has said that it will resume work on its emerging plan in the new year. Work on the plan was paused in 2022 following the government's proposed changes to the planning system. The authorities now said that it will consider the plan at a full council meeting in the new year. Meanwhile, Epsom and Yule Borough Council in Surrey has voted unanimously to unpause its local plan after a report by officers warned of the risk of speculative development or possible government intervention. The authority paused work on the strategy in March to allow further work to identify brownfield sites and to carry out more analysis of the required housing numbers. But councillors have now voted to restart work on the plan and have said this will allow them to carry out further public consultation. And uh, anything else we should be aware of on the sort of local plans front in recent weeks? Yes, it's worth pointing out that Bristol City Council has approved the final version of its strategy for submission for examination. The City Council's local plan pledges to deliver 1,925 new homes a year, which is 43% lower than the figure suggested by the government's standard method for assessing housing need. This is despite the strategy proposing the release of nearly 41 hectares of greenbelt land for housing. But um, the authority has approved the plan for a final consultation before submitting it. Thank you very much, Sam. John, can I turn back to you for the roundup of what else has been going on in the news in the last week? Up first is a recovered appeal decision. Plans for a 163,000 square metre data centre on a former quarry site in Buckinghamshire have been refused by local government minister Lee Rowley after he placed substantial weight on its harm to both the Greenbelt and the area's character and appearance. In other news, a planning inspector has approved an extension to Stansted Airport in Essex, despite concerns over heritage impacts to the original terminal building, which was designed in 1991 by architect Sir Norman Foster. Barrister Chambers Landmark Chambers has recruited one of the country's most highly rated planning silks, Melissa Murphy KC, and a high-profile junior planning barrister, Dr Ashley Bowes, from two rival sets. Another story that caught my eye this week that readers responded to was an item leading our news roundup that a developer must pay a council £400 in surcharges after he failed to tell it about an update to his email address. The Shropshire Star reported that the man appealed to the planning inspector after getting demands for failing to pay a community infrastructure levy after getting planning permission for three new homes and three workshop buildings. We don't have the full details of the case, but it seems he argued that the council failed to effectively contact him about the initial charge and his eligibility to pay. But the inspector ruled that the local authority did nothing wrong in sending its demands by email instead of using the post and that the council had not been informed that his email address was no longer in use. So it shows the risks of failing to have good communications in place if you're a developer. It can be expensive. Well, thanks very much, John. And of course, listeners can read more on all of those stories at planningresource.co.uk. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions.
Great. That's another few weeks summarised. Yes, we'll be back with a bonus edition in a week's time, exploring the fallout from Michael Gove's recent letter to council leaders and chief executives, and asking why England's green belt is growing. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening. Goodbye.